You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Today, we're sharing an episode with you that's from a little over a year ago. Why are we doing this? Well, because even though we thought we were taking this subject seriously at the time, the past 12 months have proven just how much worse the situation was than we suspected. As we've seen at protests over the past few weeks, hate groups are not only alive and well and recruiting in Canada, they are taking over parts of what should be a legitimate conservative alternative. And that's scary. So what can we do about it? Well, that's why we're sharing this episode. Please have a listen. For many Canadians who have stared in horror at events happening to the south of us over the past four weeks or four years, there is a comforting thought that arrives immediately afterwards. Thank God we're in Canada. Or maybe better phrased, thank God that could never happen here. But could it? The United States right now is a unique mix of anger, guns, conspiracy theories, white supremacy, and abject poverty. And all of that has bubbled over the past few months to create scenes that the whole world will never forget. Yes, America's recipe might be unique, but Canada already has most of those ingredients in abundance. And we haven't done much to solve the problems driving any of them. This kind of anger, though, doesn't explode overnight. It takes individual people time to arrive at the mixture of hatred and hopelessness that's needed to turn rhetoric into action. So today's question is not really, can it happen here? It's what can we do to stop it from happening here? And of course, that applies to governments and politicians and to police forces. But it also applies to you and me and to anyone who wants to believe that Canada really is different. Because if it is, it's only because we all work to make it that way. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Shaquille Chaudhry is the co-founder of Anima Leadership. He is also the author of Deep Diversity, Overcoming Us Versus Them. Hello, Shaquille. Hey, Jordan. Why don't you just take me back a week ago, and I know um, there must have been all sorts of things going through your head, but uh, as you watched the events leading up to and including um, the storming of the U.S. Capitol, you know, what's going through your head as, as somebody who spends his career dedicated to racism and social justice issues? Shocked at the images and then not surprised given the patterns and the trends that have been at play. What do you mean by that? The election of Trump uh, has been a time of absolutely unprecedented dislocation and kookiness in the political front. I mean, we had Rob Ford here in Toronto and we thought that was bad, but he was more of a harbinger of the kind of right-wing populism that has been sweeping across the Western world. And Trump is the has been the most toxic version of that. And so we've been seeing escalating violence. Uh, we've been seeing Congress and, and, uh, and, and the Senate just deadlocked and being 
not particularly helpful to anybody. And that level of polarization actually didn't start with Trump. That's actually been happening for 40 years. It's It's been actually building since the Reagan era, since the 80s, when neoliberalism and the economic model that basically um, has has wages for the average person stagnate over four decades. Uh, and yet we are making our economy is making, you know, three, four, five times what it was both in Canada and the U.S., uh, what it was in the 80s. And yet people aren't feeling that the rich have become richer, the poor have become poorer. And that might sound like some kind of leftist cliche. But the reality is, is that 10 years ago, uh, a research team led by Peter Turchin in the U.S. predicted that by 2020, the U.S. and many parts of the Western world were going to be at, quote unquote, peak violence. And so the trends have been at play and the key driver of their research has been income equality. And so the trends have been building. And today, Peter Church and his team would say that that the U.S. and the environment in the U.S. over the last four years is similar to the environment uh, in uh, just before the French Revolution in France and just before the Civil War in the United States. So these trends have been have been playing out. And I've been I've been really researching a lot about authoritarianism because I, I work with issues around polarization and racial polarization and and intergroup conflict. And so I've been looking at this over the last few years and just watching this build up and build up and knowing that it was something big was going to happen. Wow. It's really interesting that uh, you mention income inequality because there's a lot of discussion around the way that is often used uh, instead of white supremacy and racism. You know, I think we've all heard the term. Uh, it's because of economic anxiety when uh, people are trying to excuse some of this behavior. So I'm interested in your perspective, especially as somebody who looks at both sides of this, is where does income inequality and economic anxiety end? And where does uh, the racism and white supremacy that, that still drives some of this stuff begin? They're both intimately linked. I just think that uh, racism and white supremacy become more activated when people actually feel more economically um, disparate, uh, and more, uh, more feel more economically desperate, I should say. And when we are desperate, many things become possible. We want to figure out why we're struggling. And that's when society becomes most susceptible to conspiracy theories and snake oil salesmen. The wrong kind of leaders always rise in this kind of a time period. You saw this in the context of almost any society that's in, in a pre-revolutionary um, context uh, where war, just before war breaks out, I mean, you saw this in, uh, in the buildup to Nazi Germany, that people are looking for answers. They're looking for saviors. They're looking for something. And so white su supremacy is intimately tied to it. Racism is intimately tied to it because as soon as we become economically poor, someone needs to be the scapegoat. And the scapegoats are always minority groups. And so these two are intimately linked. It's just racism becomes more pronounced 
racial injustice becomes more pronounced. Anti-Semitism becomes more pronounced when we are at a point um, uh, where the where the gaps between rich and poor as are as enormous as they are today. How different is the climate in Canada right now from the climate in the United States? This is something I've been trying to wrap my head around because on on one hand, the images are so shocking that you would, of course, say it can't happen here. On the other hand, uh, things that happen in America do tend to follow in Canada quite often. So two ways I'd answer that question. One is that the rise in white nationalist groups, uh, uh, white chauvinistic groups like the Proud Boys, all these kind of things are at the same levels as they are in the U.S., in, in Canada. In fact, a, a report just came out at the end of December 2020 that indicated that in, you know, the Atlantic provinces, the places that many of us imagine are pastoral and uh, set back in time, like they saw uh, in, in that context alone, they saw something like a 60% increase in the 40 years of Trump. Right of of mm-hmm. white nationalist groups of white hate groups of of these kinds of these kinds of things. So our numbers are the same. What's different is a in the U.S. people are armed. Right. There are more weapons than there are people in the country. That's a huge factor. And the second thing is that our that our that our saving grace is is our social uh, safety net, and and that cannot be underestimated right now. And I really want politicians especially to be paying attention to this. If you want to prevent or at least hold back the tide of what's happening down there uh, from spreading here, because it's already here, let's just be clear. A response to that is more security, not security from policing, economic security. One of the foundations, if we want to tackle this war, has to be universal basic income. In fact, that's what Martin Luther King uh, was fighting for in, in the 60s and uh, members of the civil rights movement. Like, that was the language of that day, universal basic income as intimately tied towards the healing that's needed around racial injustice. These things are linked together. So politicians, general public, good people, we have to fight for universal basic income as we fight for racial justice because those two things are intimately linked because the poorest communities are racialized. The poorest communities um, are disproportionately set amongst indigenous populations, right? So these things are intimately linked and we have to be fighting them together. Can you describe, um, as somebody that does a lot of one-to-one work on overcoming biases, you know, how, how do white supremacist groups or chauvinist groups like the Proud Boys, how do they recruit ordinary people? Like, where does it begin? And, and how do you go from, you know, being interested in this group to, you know, the kinds of stuff that we've seen recently. I can just tell you what I what I've read about it, and and some of the roots are really similar. It's people looking for answers, just as it's young people that are lost, that don't have a sense of place, that don't have a sense of connection to others, that are most vulnerable to getting involved in gangs where they experience some sense of family, where they experience some sense of connection, where they have some answers and some certainty. When we are in states where we are uncertain, we're all vulnerable to being recruited 
of being recruited and being told lies. We're vulnerable to that because we are desperate as humans. We are desperate to make meaning and try to understand what's happening to us and why. And if someone shows up and seems to understand us even a little bit, and that's what Trump did to a lot of people, even though he's a total charlatan, even though he has no connection to the people, but he was able to speak some of their language because he was able to speak and give them a very clear response to a very complicated uh, situation. The clear response is simplistic. It doesn't ever um, meet the needs of how complicated poverty is or income equality. Um, but he told them some things and gave them common enemies to focus on. And as humans, we can be easily activated into common enemies. And the common enemies became Mexicans. The common enemies became Muslims. The common enemies became immigrants. The common enemies became Democrats. Anybody who was doing anything that that in any way, shape, or form had something to do with expanding access to social services was easily painted as these are the people who are trying to change your way of life. And so I think that it's really easy to be recruited, um, but it's harder to be recruited when we feel secure, when we feel secure inside ourselves, we feel secure enough to have a roof over our head, to know our kids are getting to school, uh, that we can have a job and a promotion. That kind of security is the kryptonite to fascism, is the kryptonite to hate, is allowing people to feel more secure because then we're not so, we're not so vulnerable. Hello there, it's Peter Mansbridge, host of The Bridge, where we reflect on the issues of the day and how they could impact you. Politics, public health, technology, they are just some of the topics you'll hear about. Cut through the clutter and tune into The Bridge, a Sirius XM podcast available everywhere. When you look at the level of income inequality in the United States and how, uh, as you say, Trump was able to really weaponize that. Do you see any politicians in Canada attempting to use that same tactic, attempting to, you know, prey on people who are feeling uh, economically anxious, let's say, uh, and turn them against something? Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, we've seen all kinds of politicians. Unfortunately, uh, we know that in this day and age, the party that is most vulnerable to that in anywhere across the Western world tend to be conservative parties, tend to be parties that don't want change. And so, I mean, you saw this with Stephen Harper when he was, you know, in a desperate bid to to win another election, started going towards the whatever that was, the culturally barbaric practices hotline. A reelected conservative government will also commit to establishing an RCMP tip line so that citizens and victims can call with information about incidents of barbaric cultural practices here in Canada or to notify authorities that a child or a woman is at risk of being victimized. But these practices have no place in Canadian society. Fortunately, Canadians pushed him back and said, sorry, that's not us, and Trudeau won. So I feel like there's lots of politicians that are coming out with that. And it is one of the things that conservative parties, especially have to be on the lookout for, is how those kinds of extremist politicians that basically want to make 
Canada great again, or some slogan like that, that, that those are the ones that, uh, that are going to tap into, into the same population that's here. That is, um, that's going to be supportive of those kinds of xenophobic policies. And again, I think part of our saving grace is a, we don't have the same kind of gun culture and B because we have a social, uh, we have more of a social, uh, safety net here for people. And on top of that, we had a government that immediately started going here, $2,000 a month. Right. And, and that helps. What about on an individual level? Um, I know probably lots of listeners and, and we hear from some of them um, have seen a friend or acquaintance or even a family member, you know, start to start to go down that rabbit hole where you see them posting stuff um, or talking about stuff that, you know, you wonder where they're getting it from and it starts to get a little bit more angry and inflammatory. How do you intervene and, and break up that process? Because I think we've all seen that once you do go pretty deep down that hole, it's really hard to come back. I don't think there's a short, there's an easy answer to that. There's no solution to that, Jordan. That's depressing. I think the only thing is, is it's a fine balance between challenging, uh, between countering and, you know, not wearing yourself out every single time it happens. The only thing that tends to change people that are really, really entrenched is relationships. And that's really hard. But can you stay in relationship in some way, shape or form to the degree that you can exercising the boundaries you need to, but still be in a relationship so that that person still has something to come back to? Because just like them getting there wasn't overnight, it didn't just happen. There's a whole bunch of circumstances that allow for that. The way out of it is also not simple. The way out of it is also not easy. And so that's the hardest thing to be in is to be in a relationship where people are saying stuff that is just, you can tell it's been fed by Fox News. It's been fed by, you know, people who just have strong opinions and interests in um, keeping people divided. And we need a lot of literacy in this area. Uh, and we need relationships because there's lots of information, but frequently when you just, what research shows is that when you push people with more data and more facts, you can just entrench them in their position. Hmm. Um, if you can spend some time listening, which is really hard when people are saying really stupid things, but if you can spend some more time listening to actually be in conversation um, and then offer something back and find your common ground, that might be more tactical. So I really wish here that I could just give you a three-step process, Jordan, that is shown to work over and over again, mm -hmm. but there's just not. But it, it's one of those things where when I'm in my best self, I say, don't give up on people. Uh, when I'm feeling exhausted myself, I'm like, draw boundaries for yourself and, you know, get ready to cut bait Right. when, um, when it's too much. And only you know when it's too much. And uh, and what the impacts are, are things being said around your children. If so, you better stand up, right? If these are conversations you can have in private, and it's just you know it's kind of wearing on you, you may have more capacity. So it depends on the on the impact, the implications. But I'm always you know in the best case scenarios is to find your way to hold your boundaries, to offer your opinion, but do as much listening as talking. This is my last question, and I don't know. Uh, in fact, I do not expect you to have an answer for it. But uh, how much does the image and personality of 
the person at the top of this matter? In other words, you know, after Joe Biden is inaugurated, hopefully without incident, does that help the tone get better? Does it entrench people even further on both sides? You know, how much of it is Trump as the disease versus the symptom? Trump is definitely a symptom. He's the most toxic, cancerous symptom, but he's a symptom. And it's a huge amount of difference as to who's on top. So, for example, Trump did everything to elevate and escalate anti-Muslim sentiments, for example. So you see um, anti-Muslim hate crimes happening all over the place. Um, And so anytime there is even remotely anything that looks or smells like a quote-unquote terrorist attack that involves anybody who who may have even the remotest connection to a Arab or Muslim identity, um, Trump would often stoke that as a way of attacking people of Muslim backgrounds. And you saw hate crimes going up. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, we have we have data that shows that uh, after the 9-11 attacks, George Bush, um, the days after, when he walked into a mosque and he, and he was there uh, during prayers and he said, he made a speech and said, Islam is the Muslim, of, uh, is, the, is the religion of peace. And you immediately saw a de-escalation of hate crimes, right? So escalation, de-escalation, it, it matters. And the research shows this, what leaders say and do has impact on everybody else. And, uh, and so research shows that and our lived experience shows that. So it does make a difference. Now, Joe Biden uh, is a Democrat, obviously. It will make a difference to a certain degree, but what will be more important is what happens with the Republican Party and what happens with Republican leadership and what they do. If they do what they've continued to do, which is to hold up his lies, then it will, it will polarize. It will continue to polarize. And here's, here's the thing. And this, at this point, this is, this, is, this is not at all hyperbole, but the U.S. is at the edge of civil war. Mm. They're at this edge. You can look at the data. You can look at the symptoms. You can see where, where people are. And what we know is that uh, from research on, on authoritarianism and democracies is that uh, the death of democracies occurs when the polarization in society, when the division is so extreme that people see each other as enemies. And, and that is what needs to be blunted. And there are ways to do that. There are ways to reduce it. And so um, I don't want to leave us with a, with a sense of despair, but uh, if you're okay with it, uh, there, are, there are at least three things we can all do to both support the positive things that are happening in the U.S., but also to prevent what's happening, uh, that kind of thing ha- happening here in Canada. First of all, what's overwhelming is this requires you know, the social change three-step, which is educate, mobilize, and act. So educate. The First of all, what's overwhelming about this moment is it feels like it's come out of nowhere. When we can't see the pattern, it's overwhelming. So if you look at the research on, on authoritarianism and fascism, we've lived through it in the last four years. We just didn't know we were living through it. Hmm. And so that's important. When we start seeing the pattern, then someone like Trump behaving um, like a, a total uncivil bully uh, during the first presidential debate uh, against Biden, media shouldn't be raising their hair going, can you believe he said that? It's like, well, of course you should believe that. That's just what he does. Stop focusing on the theatrics and start looking at the pattern. 
When you can see the pattern, it actually is relieving to say, okay, this is another way he's using complete lies. Well, lies is a, the use of lies is propaganda techniques through all of history. Every authoritarian uses them. So media needs to talk about that, but we at home need to be able to talk about it. So uncover the patterns of authoritarianism and fascism, because that's a time period we're in, people. This is happening globally. We're seeing the rise of authoritarians everywhere. There is no reason to think that it can't also happen here in Canada. We have the same kinds of people with those tendencies here. And we need that to be able to reimagine democracy. We need to learn about our civil liberties. And we need to learn how to be allies to marginalized groups because uh, marginalized groups, especially Muslim, uh, Indigenous, uh, Black, Jewish communities, all of these always get hurt the hardest when fascism hits. So we've got to be aware of that. The second thing is mobilize. Mobilize means help build community literacy, identify the patterns of authoritarian authoritarian behavior, and also promote what our civil liberties are. We don't even know what we're losing because we're so detached from them. So we need to get reconnected to that. We need to build coalitions. We need to embrace imperfection and reject purity politics. This is not the time for purity. This is a time for connection. And mm -hmm. um, people need to also mobilize around what racial justice means. And the last thing I want to say is, and then we act. Once we know and we are in a collective, then we act. And there's a million ways of collective action uh, that ra range from getting people out to vote as we saw in the brilliant organizing in Georgia uh, that helped turn the Senate. Um, it used to be a, a red state that no long, is now a blue state, at least purple. Uh, that Those are the kind of things you can do. You can mobilize people, but you can educate. You can build community. You can support inside your organization. You can do any and everything that is needed to both reimagine democracy, what it means, and uh, also to counter authoritarianism at the same time. And all of that supports, um, can support racial and social justice as long as we've also got that in our in our purview. That sounds like a lot, but it's also really good to have some concrete things. So thank you so much, Shaquille. You're welcome, Jordan. Pleasure to be here. Shaquille Chaudhry, co-founder of Anima Leadership. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at the Big Story FPN. Write to us via email, the Big Story Podcast, all one word, all lowercase at rci.rogers.com. And as always, we're in your favorite podcast player. All of our episodes, you can go back as far as you want on Apple and Google and Stitcher and Spotify and many, many, many others. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>